You know, sometimes the truth can be rough, can't it? If you don't believe me, let me give you a few examples. Will, I'm going to use some doctor examples. But you go to the doctor, and they tell you you need to lose weight for your health. How many of you agree that's a rough truth? Cut out sugars. I mean, you might as well tell me to cut off my left arm. <laughs> but, you know, if, if your health's at stake, that's a, something you, you, uh, you, you need to hear. You know, even on a more serious note than that, you, a doctor comes back and tells you a test result is bad. Um, you can deny that or you can say you don't want to hear it, but rough truths given to us with the right heart and the right spirit can lead to some positive things, can't they? A- absolutely. We're finishing Romans 9 tonight, and I want to tell you, hallelujah, praise Jesus. I am, I am glad. Listen, in, in two weeks, we're going to start a sermon series in the fall on Wednesday nights out of Acts chapter 1 and 2. Those are great. It's easy preaching. It's fun. God, I think, has punished me the last four weeks by having me preach this. In Romans 9, I say, is the most difficult chapter in the Bible, and I believe that after spending 50 hours in it and reading it 100 times. I believe it is the most difficult chapter, and I don't have a clue about a lot of what it says. But I do this evening know what some of the things that it is saying. We're going to be at the end of the chapter, verse 27 through the verse 33. Here's the first thing. This is a rough truth, but it is truth. Most people will not be saved. Now, I want, to, I want to go ahead and tell you, this is not primarily an evangelistic message tonight. This is a theological message. Any, any message should be theological, but you're here and you're not a Christian. I hope this will get a hope to your heart and pull you to Jesus. But there, this is a theological, doctrinal uh, passage in here this evening. Most people will not be saved. Now, we're not going to read it, but uh, to give you a little background before we get to verse 27 and verse 25 and 26, God through Paul is going back and he's using an example when Hosea the prophet was, was speaking. Now, Hosea was uh, a prophet hundreds of years before this. And he was uh, speaking to Israel when Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern tribes that were called Israel. There were ten tribes. And there was the two southern tribes of Judah. And Hosea prophesied to Israel, telling them to repent, telling them to turn back to God, or they were going to be in bad trouble. And you know what? They didn't, and he was a true prophet because they got wiped out completely. Verse 27, we, we jump in with Isaiah, who was a contemporary of Hosea. He was preaching in the southern kingdom of Judah. Verse 27, and concerning Israel. Now, Israel was talking about Judah here, but the Jewish people. Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous uh, as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. Now, what in the world is that talking about there? Again, we're going we're gonna to trip over these first couple of verses before we get to some really clear stuff. He's quoting, first of all, he's talking about where in Genesis, where God said to Abraham, before Abraham had any kids, hey, old timer, remember, he's a senior adult. He just got back from a senior adult trip, and he meets with God. He doesn't have any kids. His wife's an, uh, an elderly lady. And God says, you're going to have, your relatives and kinfolk are going to be as numerous as the, the, uh, the sand on the sea. Uh, isn't that pretty neat? He told him that. And here's what Isaiah says. It's not pretty neat. He goes, look, Israel, 
your, your bloodline or, or your kinfolk may have been as numerous as the sand of the sea, but only a small portion of them are going to be saved. Now, he's doing an interesting thing. God through Paul is here. He's kind of tying an Old Testament prophecy, which came true, into a New Testament prophecy about salvation or truth about salvation. Because Judah was eventually overran about 530 years before Christ, but a small remnant of those people came back and rebuilt uh, and established themselves as the Jewish nation. But he's applying this not to a Jewish history lesson. He's applying it to salvation. He's telling those Jewish people, he's telling you and me, a remnant means a small fraction theologically, are going to be saved. In verse 28 and 29, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's army had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Wow. You know about Sodom and Gomorrah, don't you? Read in Genesis when you get home about them to very immoral cities where there wasn't repentance and every one of them was wiped out. Thank God saying there, except by the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the, the love of God, none of us would be saved. Now, the Jewish remnant would have been hundreds of years before this, but none of us would be, period. But he's bringing it in together to say this to them and to us, to Jewish people and to Gentile people, salvation's narrow. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is what? It is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. Verse 14, but the gateway to life is what? Very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. One of the things in Romans chapter 9, he's beating home to these people, is that a lot of people are missing salvation. We're going to look at why in a moment. But that's true 2,000 years later. A lot of people are missing salvation. And I want to tell you, when you proclaim from a pulpit, or you proclaim over a lunch at work or at school, wherever, that most people are not going to heaven, most people are going to hell, that's truth, but it's not popular. That's not pleasing. So you can water it down, and you can cheese it up. I've heard TV preachers, oh, most people will be saved in the end. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus didn't believe it. Always go with Jesus if in doubt, correct? That's a safe thing for us. But this is not popular. Several, this is several years ago, I heard a popular TV uh, news host say this. And this is a guy that would probably be considered middle of the road to conservative. He said this. He said, I think it should be illegal in the United States to tell someone else they're going to hell. Two things came to my mind. Number one, free speech. That's one thing our country's built on, correct? I mean, you want to tell me as a Baptist I'm an idiot? You have the right to tell me that. True? Sometimes you would be accurate, but hopefully not most of the time. But the second thing that came to my mind, as a preacher and as a Christian, I'm going to tell people the truth, and you can make it illegal, and you can put me in jail, but I'm going to still do it. But if a conservative or semi-conservative broadcaster is saying that ought to be illegal, that's not popular. If you doubt me on this, go up to Washington. 
<laughs> and, and begin to walk the halls of Congress and, and stop those esteemed people and tell them without Jesus they're going to hell and that most people are. You think you'd win a popularity contest? You'll be audited next week would be my guess. <laughs> hey, rough truth. I'd rather be beaten with a rough truth than kissed with a sweet lie. The Bible says most people aren't going to heaven. Here's the second truth. This is kind of rough. It's not to you and me, but get out of your bubble. Let's, let's live in the real world. Salvation happens on God's terms. Happens on God's terms. That's been one of the themes of this, this chapter. Such a big thing then, such a big thing now. Here's the first thing. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation happens on God's terms. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Look in verse 30. But what does this all mean? Goodness gracious, I've been wondering that since I started in chapter 1 four weeks ago. Remember I told you when we started this four-week series that the first three verses and the last verses bring this passage together and help us understand. What does all this mean? What does this mean about Hosea and Isaiah and all that? And I hope I helped you a little bit with that. But here's what, what does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God, and it was by faith that this took place. Who's a Gentile? Let me ask this, anybody in here by birth a Jew, by, by bloodline, then you're a Gentile. <laughs> Did you know that? You're a Gentile. I'm a Louisianan. You're a Gentile, according to the Bible, too. You go, okay, what's the big deal about this? Let me tell you, this is a, you've got to put your mind, this, this, he's really speaking in chapter 9 to Jewish people who believed they were God's people. And not God's people like you and I understand it as a missionary people with a purpose, but they were God's people and everybody else wasn't God's people. And they were going to be God's people regardless of what happened. Here he's saying, hey, wait a second. The Gentiles have found salvation. And now, th this is a tremendous concept if you're taking notes. I'm preaching from the New Living Translation, and it says they were made right with God. And that, that is literally the righteousness of God. What, what does this phrase mean, right with God here? They were made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Right with God means justified. It means that by placing one's faith in Christ, that you are legally and eternally made righteous before God. That God's righteousness, he imputes, he pours in you and on you, and he imparts it on you. Listen, when, when you are saved... God makes you clean and righteous in his eyes. Is that not beautiful? From the inside out, you become what 2 Corinthians 5 says, a new creation. You are declared innocent and right with God before him. How's that happen? You want that to happen, don't you? How's that happen? It says it happens through faith. What, what does the word faith in your Bible mean? This is real important. It means to be persuaded. It means credence or reliance on Christ. It's a belief in Christ that changes our life. So many of us who've grown up in the South think if you get baptized and you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose, then automatically you're saved. Faith in Christ it does involve the mind. It involves the heart. When I, when I got saved, I not only believed the facts, I surrendered my heart. 
That's faith and repentance, belief, surrender, all tied up in that one word, faith. John 1, 12 sums it up so well. This one verse, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. So here's what he's saying. God makes the terms of salvation. You comfortable with that? You're comfortable with that. A lot of people aren't comfortable with that. God makes the terms. Those Jewish people weren't liking what they hear. And here's what he said. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you're a Jew, if you're a Baptist, you don't like it. does not matter. God creates the terms of salvation. And he says, listen, this is beautiful. When you put your faith and trust, you surrender to Christ, the righteousness of God is poured in you and on you, and you are made right and legal just standing before God. Is that not wonderful? That's how God spells it out. Now, here's the negative part of this. The negative part of this is salvation is not obtained in any other way. Some of you are strong Christians. You've been in church for years, and you're going, well, I don't have a problem with that. Get out of your bubble. (laughs) They sure had a problem with this 2,000 years ago. And boy, does our world have a problem with it today. Look in verse 31. But the people of Israel, the Jewish people who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping his law, never succeeded. Paul, a Jew, just said, the Gentiles who you hate, and you think God hates, they're saved. They're getting saved by their faith in Christ. And God is clearing them to just and righteous before him. But you Jewish people who have the promises, the Ten Commandments, the temple, the history, the religion, God chose the Jewish people for specific purposes. You're going to bust hell wide open because you're trying to get it the wrong way. Would that have upset you? What, what is this verse when it says they tried so hard? It means they pursued after They press towards something. And it says they they never succeeded. The word succeed there means to obtain or arrive. Paul often talked in athletic terms. And this is the picture of a runner. Coming out of the Olympics, this is a good picture. That's running or straining after something, trying to get to the prize, trying to get to the finish line. And, And what he says to them, he says, you're trying so hard to earn your way to God and you can never do it. Look in verse 32. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of trusting in him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. Keeping the law there literally means by works, by effort, by deeds. The Gentiles were saved God's way by faith in Christ. The the Jewish people were trying to earn it. And he says they stumbled, they, they fell, and they tripped up. Again, it's the athletic picture of a runner who hits the hurdle and who trips or, or who's on the way to the finish line and gets a cramp or pulls a muscle and doesn't make it, doesn't succeed. Verse 33, it says, God warned them of, of, of this in the scripture when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem. That's Jesus that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. We're going to look at the last part of that verse in a minute. Jesus hears the stone. He said these Jewish people are trying to work, they're trying to push, trying to be religious, trying to get to God. And the way to God's right there in front of them, and they're tripping over it, and they're following over it. You may say this evening, well, what does that have to do with me? Let me tell you what it has to do with you. It may have to do with you personally, but I know it has to do with you missionarily and evangelistically. Most people think 
you get to heaven by being good. Folks, in the United States of America, I, I can't give you hard data, but I'm almost certain this is true. There's not been any country that's been more saturated with Bibles, with Christianity and religion ever than we have. Two-thirds of the people in our country, when interviewed, here's what they say when they're asked, how do you get to heaven? You know what they say? By good works. Did you know that? My dad, I remember when he was a little boy, he said he, he grew up, they went to a little church, and he just remembers that that church, they were told, you get to heaven, you're going to stand before God. He's going to put your good deeds on one side and your bad deeds on the other. And whatever weighs the most will determine your eternal destiny. And when he was 12, he and his father were saved in Baptist churches where he heard it's by grace through faith. And he never left the Baptist church after that. It stuck in his head and his heart. People think that you can earn it. And you go, well, if, if, if I'm good enough... If I try hard enough, if I'm religious enough, listen, some of you are thinking that. I promise you. We got 850, 900 people here on Sunday. There are people thinking that. There are people all over Ruston that say, well, I trust in Christ, but they're really in the deep depths of their heart. They're thinking, if I'm good enough, I try enough, I'll get there. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I wonder if there's somebody in here tonight that does think they're good enough. I mean, really, because... There's some nice, honest, fair, good people in this room tonight. Of course, my wife would be one of them. That's called brownie points, men. The Greek term for that, I don't know. but uh, There was a baseball pitcher named Philip Humber. Brandon, am I pronouncing that correctly? You recognize that name? Philip Humber. Philip Humber. Is Rosetta here? She's not here tonight. He... And, and uh, there she is, Rosetta. He played for the White Sox, and Rosetta's a Cubs fan, so that could create some tension with Rosetta tonight. But on, on April, in April of, of 2012, he pitched a perfect game. Now, in baseball, if you don't know, Major League Baseball, what's a perfect game? It means in, in nine innings, you face three batters, and every time, every batter that gets up, gets out. You don't hit one, you don't walk one, nobody gets a hit. Every batter comes up, they get out. Nine straight innings. And, folks, to, to give you an idea, the Major League Baseball is 112 years old. That's happened about 23 times. So do you realize how hard a perfect game is? So wouldn't you say that Phillip was the perfect pitcher? Yeah, until the next game. The very next game, he gave up nine runs in five innings. At the end of the season, the White Sox let him go. Is that not incredible? You see, you have a good day, I have a good day, and our attitude's good, and our, our words are good, and we think, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty royal. All it takes is one bad thing to happen, and you say and do crazy things. Or your attitude and your heart. Am I lying? I, I love what Benjamin Franklin said. He, Benjamin Franklin made a list of 13 or 14 virtues he was going to keep religiously. He said, I begin to keep them and do well, and then I realized I was full of pride. <laughs> have you ever noticed that? You get up early, you have a good quiet time, you exercise, you come to work and you're proud of how spiritual you've been. Happens every day. I mean, I understand. Uh, the, the pride thing, certainly. Can I tell you something? You can't be good enough. Some of you aren't struggling with this, but you know people. You, you can't be. God's standard is Perfection perfection that's why I need God to put his righteousness on me not to bring my righteousness to him you follow me 
I don't need to someday plead to God, look at all the money I've given, how, what a big shot I am, how religious I am. I need God's righteousness, which is perfect on me, not my righteousness, which is, the Bible says, is filthy rags before him. That's good, isn't it? Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's because you're a church member. You've been baptized. Listen, I love church members. <laughs> I love for you to join the church. I love to baptize people. Right now, my back is good. We have a seat in the baptistry. It's easy. And every time we baptize somebody, it's wonderful. That's not going to save you. I don't know if Cindy remembers this, but in our previous church, in our community, a pastor, uh, and I'm not going to tell you the denomination. I just said this. It was not the Catholic priest. It was another denomination. Had an article. I don't know how in the world he got the right to do this, but he had an article in, a, in another town in a paper which probably had a circulation at that time, two or 300,000 people. And it was a detailed article about how baptism saves you. And he was talking primarily about sprinkling. And when that baby is saved, and he used a lot of scripture in this, I want to tell you, I went through the roof when I read that. That's just heresy. Folks, if I believe that, we'd be going to the hospital sprinkling every baby up there. And you're saying, well, what if their parents didn't want you to? It wouldn't matter. That baby doesn't care or doesn't know. If I thought that would save them, we would do it. Somehow we would do it. But that doesn't save you. And I'm not against sprinkling a baby. And I'm certainly not against baptizing a believer. That doesn't save you unless you are a believer first. And the baptism is a, is a profession of that, not what saves you. See, it was so hard on the Jewish people to accept that all their religion, all their goodness, their bloodline, that none of that was going to make them right before God. Any more than your bloodline or my bloodline or our goodness or our baptisms or our religion. Listen, and again, some of you, it's, it's not you, but that that family member, that friend, you need to sell them on this. Salvation is on God's terms. And let me give you one last beautiful thought out of this chapter. Salvation is possible for everyone. This chapter ends strangely and beautifully. God warned them of this in the Scripture when he said, I'm placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble. That's Jesus. A rock that makes them fall. But anyone, everyone, All people who trust, put their faith in Jesus, will never be disgraced, shamed, or honored. Here's what he was saying to them. If you're a Jewish person, if you're a non-Jewish person, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, no matter who you are, you're never going to be cast aside or thrown out. Isn't that wonderful? Listen, if Romans 9 confuses you, you are honest. But Romans 10 doesn't confuse you. Verse 9 and 10, listen to what it says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and confessing with your mouth that you are saved. This is for you and me and those we share. Verse 11, as the Scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. We just read that, didn't we? Verse 12, Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord. Jewish people were not happy to hear this. Who gives generously to all who call on him. And maybe my favorite verse in the Bible. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that awesome? 
Now, how does that tie in with most people won't be saved? What well, ties in like this? You got to accept or reject Christ. You got to accept Him. I have a friend who's a, a pastor in another denomination, and years ago, the, his denomination was starting to struggle with universalism. Do you know what universalism is? It's beautiful, it's just false. <laughs> universalism says everybody will be saved. You're going to get to heaven, and there's going to be Jesus, and Peter, and Judas, and Hitler, and everybody, because everybody's just going to be saved in the end. That's great, it's just a lie. So it can't really be great. And my friend, my friend, this is so great. This took so much courage. He's at a, a meeting and he said, may I ask, why are we spending millions of dollars to send missionaries all over the world if they're going to be saved anyway? And all God's people said, Amen. not everybody's going to be saved. Look at verse 14, what verse 14 says in Romans 10. How can they call on one they've not believed in? How can they believe in one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching just means t- telling it to them? Now, the opposite side of universalism would be a fatalism that God has chosen some for salvation and some for damnation. I think Romans chapter 10 blows that away, the whole chapter. For everyone and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Listen, we don't need to send missionaries out if God's already predetermined. Correct? Hey, I had lunch with a, a great missionary today, Josh Phillips. Josh is going back to China in, in a month or two. Should I be saying this out loud, Josh? Is this okay? Okay. And you know what? What I loved hearing about Josh's heart, Josh is going there to try to win people to Jesus. Because he doesn't believe they're already saved. Everybody is. You don't need to go, Josh. Stay here. Or if it's already predetermined, don't go, Josh. You're spinning your wheels. The Bible says, for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God wrote the rules, but he wrote the rules in blood, in the blood of his son, in love. Isn't that great? So what does all this mean? Man, Romans 9 is such a great picture of that God wrote the rules. That God loves us, but that we have to conform to him, not him to us. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, the only way you're going to get Christ, the only way you're going to get to heaven is through Jesus. Would you come in a moment, would you come when we stand and let one of our ministers help you find Christ? If you're here tonight and you'd like to join our church, You can do it afterwards. You can come when the invitation is given. We'd love for you to join our church tonight. Here's the kind of church we are. We're going to try to love people and lift up Jesus and point people to Jesus. If that's what you're looking for, that's who we are. Come and join us. Christian, man, maybe tonight you just need to spend some time where you are thanking God. When was the last time you thanked God for saving you? When was the last time you said, Jesus, thank you for cleaning out my stuff and putting your beautiful stuff on me? What a great night. Where you're standing or at the altar to thank God and make a fresh commitment to share the love and salvation of Christ with everybody. Let's stand. As God speaks to your heart, as you need to, you come. We'll be waiting on you.